Hello everyone, welcome to my first podcast, uh, my first episode, I guess. Um, this is my podcast, obviously, I'm gonna be, well, in this one, I'm gonna be reading The Vampire Lestat by Anne Rice, and yes, I know it's the second one in the series, and I have the first one, but I've read that one already, and I don't want to read it again, so I'm gonna read this one now. Um, so without further ado... The Vampire Lestat. Downtown. Saturday night in the 20th century. 1984. I am the Vampire Lestat. I'm immortal, more or less. The light of the sun, the sustained heat of intense fire. These things might destroy me. But then again, they might not. I'm six feet tall, which was fairly impressive in the night in the 1780s when I was a young mortal man. It's not bad now. I have thick blonde hair, not quite shorter length, and rather curly, which appears white under fluorescent light. My eyes are gray, but they absorb the colors blue or violet easily from surfaces around them. And I have a fairly short, narrowed nose and a mouth that is very well shaped, but just a little too big for my face. It can look very mean, or extremely generous, my mouth. It always looks sensual. But emotions and attitudes are always reflected in my entire expression. I have a continuously animated face. My vampire nature reveals itself in an extremely white and highly reflective skin that has to be powdered down for cameras of any kind. And if I'm starved for blood, I look up perfect horror. Skin shrunken, veins like ropes over the contours of my bones. But I don't let that happen now. And the only consistent indication that I am not human is my fingernails. It's the same with all vampires. Our fingernails look like glass. And some people notice that when they don't notice anything else. Right now, I'm what America calls a rock superstar. My first album sold four million copies. I'm going to San Francisco for the first spot in a nationwide concert tour that will take my band from coast to coast. MTV, the rock music cable channel, has been playing my video clips night and day for two weeks. They're also being shown in England on top of the pops and on the continent, probably in some parts of Asia and in Japan. Video cassettes of the whole series of clips are selling worldwide. I am also the author of an autobiography which was published last week. Regarding my English, the language I used in my autobiography, I first learned it from a, from a flat boatman who came down the Mississippi to New Orleans about 200 years ago. I learned more after that from the English language writers, everybody from Shakespeare through Mark Twain to H. Ryder Haggard, whom I read it as the decades passed. The final infusion I received from the detective stories of the early 20th century in the Black Mask magazine. The Adventures of Sam Spade by Dash Heel Hammett in Black Mask were the last stories I read before I went literally and figuratively underground. That was in New Orleans in 1929. When I write, I drift into a vocabulary that would have been natural to me in the 18th century into phrases shaped by the authors I've read, 
but in spite of my French accent, I still talk like a cross between a flat boatman and a detective Sam Spade, actually. So I hope you'll bear with me with my style is inconsistent. When I blow the atmosphere of an 18th century scene to smithereens now and then, what brought me up were two things. First, the information I was receiving from the amplified voices that had begun their cacophony in the air around the time I lay down to sleep. I'm referring here to the voices of radios, of course, and phonographs, and later television machines. I heard the radios and the cars that passed in the streets of the old garden district where, near the place where I lay. I heard the phonographs and TVs from the houses that surrounded mine. Now, when a vampire goes underground, as we call it, when he ceases to drink blood and he just lies in the earth, he soon becomes too weak to resurrect himself, and what follows is a dream state. In that state, I absorb the voices sluggishly, surrounding them by unresponsive images as a mortal does in sleep. But at some point during the past 55 years, I began to remember what I was hearing, to follow the entertainment programs, to listen to the news broadcasts, the lyrics and rhythms of the popular songs. And very gradually, I began to understand the caliber of the changes that the world had undergone. I began listening for specific pieces of information about wars or inventions, certain new patterns of speech. Then, a self-consciousness developed in me. I realized I was no longer dreaming. I was thinking about what I heard. I was wide awake. I was lying in the ground and I was starved for living blood. I started to believe that maybe all the old wounds I'd sustained had been healed by now. Maybe my strength had come back. Maybe my strength was actually increased, as it would have done with time if I'd never been hurt. I wanted to find out. I started to think incessantly of drinking human blood. The second thing that brought me back, the decisive thing really, was the sudden presence near me of a band of young rock singers who called themselves Satan's Night Out. They moved into a house on 6th Street, less than a block away from where I slumbered on my underhouse in Britannia, near the Lafayette Cemetery, and they started to rehearse their rock, their rock music in the attic sometime in 1984. I could hear their whining electric guitars, their frantic singing. It was as good as the radio and stereo songs I heard, and it was more melodic than most. There was a romance to it, in spite of its pounding drums. The electric piano sounded like a harpsichord. I caught images from the thoughts of the musicians that told me what they looked like, what they saw when they looked at each other and into mirrors. They were slender, sinewy, and altogether lovely young mortals, beguilingly androgynous and even a little savage in their dress and movements. Two male and one female. They drowned out most of the other amplified voices around me when they were playing. But that was perfectly all right. I wanted to rise and join the rock band called Satan's Night Out. I wanted to sing and to dance. But I can't say that in the very beginning there was a great thought behind my wish. It was rather a ruling impulse, strong enough to bring me up from the earth. I was enchanted by the world of rock music, the way the singers could scream of good and evil, proclaim themselves angels or devils, and mortals would stand up and cheer. 
Sometimes they seemed the pure embodiment of madness. And yet, it was technologically dazzling, the intricacy of their performance. It was barbaric and cerebral in a way that I don't think the world of ages past has ever seen. Of course it was metaphor, the raving. None of them believed in angels or devils, no matter how well they assumed their parts. And the players of the old Italian commedia had been as shocking, as inventive, as lewd. Yet it was entirely new. The extremes to which they took it, the brutality and the defiance, and the way they embraced, the way they were embraced by the world from the very rich to the very poor. Also, there was something vampiric about rock music. It must have sounded supernatural even to those who don't believe in the supernatural. I mean the way the electricity could stretch a single note forever, the way harmony could be layered upon harmony until you felt yourself dissolving in the sound. So eloquent of dread it was, this music. The world just didn't have it in any form before. Yes, I wanted to get closer to it. I wanted to do it. Maybe make the unknown band of Satan's Night Out famous. I was ready to come up. It took a week to rise, more or less. I fed, I fed on the fresh blood of the little animals who live under the earth when I could catch them. Then I started crawling for the surface, where I could summon the rats. From there, it wasn't too difficult to take felines and finally the inevitable human victim, though I had to wait a long time for the particular kind I wanted, a man who had killed other mortals and showed no remorse. One came, came along eventually, walking right by the fence, a young male with a grizzled beard who had murdered another man, another in some far-off place on the other side of the world. True killer, this one. And oh, that first taste of human struggle and human blood. Stealing clothes from nearby houses, getting some of the golden jewels I'd hidden in the Lafayette Cemetery. That was no problem. Of course, I was scared from time to time. The stench of chemicals and gasoline sickened me. The drone of air conditioners and the whine of the jet planes overhead hurt my ears. But after the third night up, I was roaring around New Orleans in a big black Harley Davidson motorcycle, making plenty of noise myself. I was looking for more killers to feed on. I wore gorgeous black leather clothes that I had taken from my, my victims, and I had a little Sony Walkman stereo in my pocket that fed box out of the food through tiny earphones right into my head as I blazed along. I was the vampire Lestat again. I was back in action. New Orleans was once again my killing ground. As my strength, well, it was three times what it had once been. I could leap from the street to the top of a four-story building. I could pull iron gratings off windows. I could bend a copper penny double. I could hear human voices and thoughts when I wanted to for blocks around. By the end of the first week, I had a pretty female lawyer in a downtown glass and steel skyscraper who helped, who helped me procure a legal birth certificate, social security card, and driver's license. A good portion of my old wealth was on its way to New Orleans and coded accounts in the immortal Bank of London and the Rothschild Bank. But more important, I was swimming in realizations. 
I knew that everything the amplified voices had told me about the 20th century was true. As I roamed the streets of New Orleans in 1984, this is what I beheld. The dark, dreary, industrial world that I'd gone to sleep on had burnt itself out finally, and the yard bore swaggy prudity and conformity had lost their hold on the American mind. People were adventurous and erotic again the way they'd been in the old days, before the great middle-class revolution, revolution, revolutions of the late 1700s. They even looked the way they had in those times. The men didn't wear the Sam Spade uniform shirt, tie, gray suit, and gray hat any longer. Once again, they costumed themselves in velvet and silk, and brilliant colors that they felt like it. They did not have to clip their hair like Roman soldiers anymore. They wore it any length they desired. And the women, ah, oh, the women were glorious, naked in the spring warmth as if they'd been, as they'd been under the Egyptian pharaohs, in skimpy short skirts and tunic-like dresses, or wearing men's pants and skirts, skin tight over their curvaceous bodies if they pleased. They painted and decked themselves out in gold and silver, even to walk to the grocery store. Or they went fresh, scrubbed, and without ornament. It didn't matter. They curled their hair like Marie Antoinette, or cut it off, or let it flow free. For the first time in history, perhaps, they were as strong as an, and as interesting as men. And these were the common people of America. Not just the rich who'd always achieved a certain androgyny, a certain joie de vivre that the middle-class revolutionaries called decadence in the past. The old aristocratic sensuality now belonged to everybody. It was wed to the promises of the middle of the middle class revolution, and all people had a right to love and to luxury and to a graceful things. Department stores had become palaces of near or, or, or oriental loveliness. Merchandise displayed amid soft tinted carpeting. Eerie music, amber light. In the all-night drugstores, bottles of violet and green shampoo gleamed like gems on the sparkling glass shelves. Waitresses drove sleek leather-lined automobiles to work. Dock laborers went home at night to swim their heated backrod pools. Charwomen and plumbers changed at the end of the day into exquisitely cut, manufactured clothes. In fact, the poverty and filth that had been common in the big cities of the earth since time immemorial were almost completely washed away. You, di you just didn't see immigrants dropping dead of starvation in the alleyways. There weren't slums where people slept eight to ten a room. Nobody threw the slops in the gutters. The beggars, the cripples, the orphans, the hopelessly diseased were so diminished as to constitute no presence in the immaculate streets at all. Even the drunkards and lunatics who slept on the park benches and, bus and in the bus stations had meat to eat regularly, and even radios to listen to, and clothes that were, that were washed. But this was just the surface. I found myself astounded by the pro profound change that moved this awesome current along. For example, something altogether magical had happened to time. The old was not being retainly pleased by the new anymore. On the contrary, the English spoken around me was the same as it had been in the 1800s. Even the old slang, the coast is clear, or bad luck, or that's the thing, was still current. Yet fascinating new phrases like, they brainwashed you, and it's so Freudian, and I can't relate to it, were on everyone's lips. 
In the art and entertainment worlds, all prior centuries were being recycled. Musicians performed Mozart as well as jazz and rock music. People went to see Shakespeare in one night and a French film on the next. In giant fluorescent lighted emporiums, you could buy tapes of medieval Mardi Gras and play them on your car stereo as you drove 90 miles an hour down the freeway. In the bookstores, Renaissance poetry sold side by side with the novels of Dickens or Ernest Hemingway. Six manuals lay on the same tables with the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Sometimes the wealth and the cleanliness everywhere around me became like hallucination. I thought I was going out of my head. Through shop windows I gazed stupefied at computers and telephones as pure in form and color as nature's most exalted shells. Gargantuan civil limousines navigated the narrow French Quarter streets like indestructible sea beasts. Glittering office towers pierced the night sky like Egyptian obelisks above the sagging brick buildings of Old Canal Street. Countless television programs poured their ceaseless flow of images into every air-cooled hotel room. But it was no series of hallucinations. This century had inherited the earth in every sense, and no small part of this unpredicted miracle was the curious innocence of these people in the very midst of their freedom and where well. Christian God was as dead as Yabin in the 1700s, and no new mythological religion had arisen to take the place of the old. On the contrary, the simplest people of this age were driven by a vigorous secular morality as strong as any religious morality I've ever known. The intellectuals carried the standards, but quite ordinary individuals all over America cared passionately about peace and the poor and the planet, as if driven by a mystical zeal. Famine they intended to wipe out in the century, disease they would destroy no matter what the cost. They argued ferociously about the execution of condemned criminals, the abortion of unborn babies, and the threats of environmental pollution and holocaustal war. They battled as fiercely as men have battled witchcraft and heresy in the ages past. As for sexuality, it was no longer a matter of superstition and fear. The last religious overtones were being ripped, were being stripped from it. That was why people went around half naked. That was why they kissed and hugged each other in the streets. They talked ethics and responsibility and the beauty of the body. Procreation and venereal disease they had under control. Ah, oh, the 20th century. Ah, oh, the turn of the great wheel. It had outdistanced my wildest dreams of it, this future. It had made fools of grim prophets of ages past. I did a lot of thinking about this sinless secular morality, this optimism, this brilliantly lighted world where the value of human life was greater than it had ever been before. In the amber electric twilight of a vast hotel room, I watched on the screen before me the stunningly crafted film of war called Apocalypse Now. Such a symphony of sound and color it was, and it sang of the age-old battle of the Western world against evil. You must make a friend of horror and moral terror, says the mad commander in the savage garden of Cambodia, to which the Western man answers as he has always answered. No. No. Horror and moral terror can never be exonerated. They have no real value. Pure evil has no real place. And that means, doesn't it, that I have no place. Except, perhaps, 
the art that repudiates evil, the vampire comics, the horror novels, the old gothic tales, or in the roaring chants of the rock stars who dramatize the battles against evil that each moral mortal fights within himself. It was enough to make an old world monster go back into the earth, this stunning irreverence to the mighty scheme of things, enough to make him lie down and weep, or enough to make him become a rock singer when you think about it. But where were the other old world monsters? I wondered. How did other vampires exist in a world in which each death was recorded to a, in giant electronic computers and bodies were carried away into refrigerated crypts, perhaps concealing themselves like lonesome insects in the shadows, as they have always done no matter how much philosophy they talked or how many covens they formed? Well, when I raised my voice with a little band called Satan's Night Out, I would bring them all into the light soon enough. I continued my education. I talked to mortals at bus stamps and at gas stations and in elegant drinking places. I read books. I decked myself out in the shimmering dream skins of the fashionable shops. I wore white turtleneck shirts and crisp khaki savari jackets or a lush gray velvet blaze with cashmere scarves. I powdered down my face so that I could pass beneath the chemical lights of all of the all-night supermarkets, the hamburger joints, the carnival thoroughfares called nightclub strips. I was learning. I was in love. And the only problem that I had was that murderers to feed upon was scarce. In this shiny world of innocence and plenty, of kindness and gaiety and full stomachs, the common cutthroat thieves of the past and their dangerous waterfront hangouts were almost gone. And so I had to work for a living. But I'd always but I'd always been a hunter. I liked the dim, smoky pool rooms with the single light shining on the green felt, as the tattooed ex-convicts gathered around it as much as I liked the shiny, satin-lined nightclubs of the big concrete hotels. And I was learning more all the time about my killers. The drug dealers, the pimps, the murderers who fell in with the motorcycle gangs. And more than ever, I was resolute that I would not drink innocent blood. Finally, it was time to call upon my old neighbors, the rock band called Satan's Night Out. At 6.30 on a hot, sticky Saturday night, I rang the doorbell of the Attic Music Studio. The beautiful young mortals were all, were all lying about in their rainbow-colored silk shirts and skin-tight dungarees smoking hashish cigarettes and complaining about their rotten luck getting gigs in the South. They looked like biblical angels with their long, clean, shaggy hair and feline movements. Their jewelry was Egyptian, even to rehearse, they, they painted their faces and eyes. I was overcome with excitement and love just looking at them. Alex and Larry and the second little tough cookie. And in an eerie moment I was in, I, in which the world seemed to stand still beneath me, I told them what I was. Nothing new to them, the word vampire. In the galaxy in which they shone, a thousand other singers had been, had worn the theatrical fangs in the black cape. 
and yet it felt so strange to speak it aloud to mortals. The forbidden truth. Never in two hundred years had I spoken it to anyone who had not been marked to become one of us. Not even to my victims that I confided before their eyes closed. And now I said it clearly and distinctly to these handsome young creatures. I told them that I wanted to sing with them. That if they were to trust me, we would all be rich and famous. That on a wave of preternatural and remorseless ambition, I would carry them out of these rooms and into the great world. Their eyes missed as they looked at me and the little 20th century chamber of stucco and pasteboard rang with their laughter and delight. I was patient. Why shouldn't I be? I knew I was a demon who, was, who could mimic almost any human sound or movement, but how could they be expected to understand? I went to the electric piano and began to play and to sing. I imitated the rock songs as I started, and then the old melodies and lyrics came back to me. French songs buried deep in my soul, yet never abandoned. And I wound these into brutal rhythms, seen before me a tiny, crowded little Paris theater of centuries ago. A dangerous passion welled in me. It threatened my equilibrium. Dangerous that this should come so soon. Yet I sang on, pounding the slick white keys of the electric piano, and something in my soul was broken open. Never mind that these tender mortal creatures gathered around me and should never know. It was sufficient that they were jubilant, that they loved the eerie and disjointed music, that they were screaming, that they saw prosperity in the future, the impetus that they had lacked before. They turned on the tape machine and began singing and playing together, jamming as they called it. The studio swam with the scent of their blood, not thunderous songs. But then came a shock I had never had, I had never, I had never in my strangest dreams anticipated. Something that I was ex as extraordinary as my little revelation to these creatures had been. In fact, it was so overwhelming that it might have driven me out of their world and back underground. I don't mean I would have gone into the deep slumber again, but I might have backed off from Satan's night out and roamed about for a few years, stunned and trying to gather my wits. The man, the men, Alex, the sweet, delicate young drummer, and his taller, blonde-haired brother Larry, recognized my name when I told them I was the, it was Lestat. Not only did they recognize it, but they connected it with a body of information about me that they had read in a book. In fact, they thought it was delightful that I wasn't just pretending to be any vampire, or Count Dracula. Everybody was sick of Count Dracula. They thought it was marvelous that I was pretending to be the vampire Lestat. Pretending to be the vampire Lestat? I asked. They laughed at my exaggeration, my French accent. I looked at all of them for a long moment, trying to, sca trying to scan their thoughts. Of course, I hadn't expect them to believe I was a real vampire. But to have read of a fictional vampire with a name as unusual as mine, how could this be explained? But I was losing my confidence. And then, and when I lose my confidence, my powers drain. The little rooms seemed to be getting smaller, and there was something insectile and menacing about the instruments, the antennas, 
the wires. Show me this book, I said. From the other room they brought it, a small pulp paper novel that was falling to pieces. The binding was gone, the cover ripped, the whole held together by a rubber band. I got a preternatural shell of sorts at the sight of the cover. Interview with the vampire. Something to do with a mortal boy getting one of the undead to tell the tale. With their permission, I went into the other, into the other room, stretched out on a bed and began to read. When I was halfway finished, I took the book with me and left the house. I stood stock still beneath the street lamp with the book until I finished it. Then I placed it carefully in my breast pocket. I didn't return to the band for seven nights. During much of that time, I was roaming again, crashing through the night on my Harley Davidson motorcycle with the Bach Goldberg variations turned up to full volume. And I was asking myself, the stat, what do you do now? And the rest of the time I studied with a renewed purpose. I read the fat paperback histories and lexicons of rock music, the chronicles of its stars. I listened to the albums and pondered this in silence, the concert videotapes. And, the, and when the night was empty and still, I heard the voices of Interview with the Vampire singing to me, as if they sang from the grave. I read the book over and over, and then, in a moment of contemptible anger, I shredded it to bits. Finally, I came to my decision. I met my young lawyer, Christine, in her, in her darkened skyscraper office with, the, with only the downtown city to give us light. Lovely, she looked against the glass wall behind her, the dim buildings forming, forming a harsh and primitive train in which a thousand torches burned. It is not enough any longer that my little rock band be successful, I told her. We must create a fame that will carry my name and my voice to the remotest parts of the world. Quietly, intelligently, as lawyers are wont to do, she advised me against risking my fortune. Yet as I continued with maniacal confidence, I could feel her seduction, the slow disillusion of her common sense. The best French directors for the rock video films, I said. You must lure them from New York and Los Angeles. There's ample money for that, and here you can find the studios, surely, in which we will do our work. The young record producers mix the sound after, again, you must hire the best. It does not matter what we spend on this venture. What is important is that it must be orchestrated, that we do our work is, is important, in secret until the moment of the revelation when our albums and our films are released with the book that I propose to write. Finally, her head was swimming with dreams of wealth, power. Her pen raced as she made her notes. And what did I dream of as I spoke to her? Of an unprecedented rebellion, a great and horrific challenge to my kind all over the world. These rock videos, I said, you must find directors who will realize my visions. The films are to be sequential. They must tell the story that is in the book I want to create. And the songs, many of them I've already written. You must obtain superior instruments, synthesizers, the finest sound systems, electric guitars, violins, other details we can attend to later. 
the designing of vampire costumes, the method of presentation to the rock television stations, the management of our first public, public appearance in San Francisco, all that in good time. What is important now is that you make the phone calls, get the information you need to begin. I didn't go back to Satan's night out until the first agreements were struck and signatures had been obtained. Dates were fixed, studios rented, letters of agreements exchanged. Then Christine came with me, and we, made, and we had a great leviathan of a limousine for my darling young rock players. Larry and Alex and Tough Cookie. We had breathtaking sums of money. We had papers to be signed. Under the drowsy oaks of the quiet garden district street, I poured the champagne into the glistening crystal glasses for them. To the vampire Lestat, we all sang in the moonlight. It was to be the new name of the band, of the book I'd write. Tough Cookie threw her secular little arms around me. We kissed tenderly amid her laugh laughter in the reek of wine. Ah, oh, the smell of innocent blood. And when they had gone off in the, in the velvet lined motor coach, I moved alone through the balmy night towards St. Charles Avenue and thought about the danger facing them, my little mortal friends. It didn't come from me, of course, but when the long period of secrecy was ended, they would stand innocently and ignorantly in the international limelight with their sinister and reckless star. Well, I would surround them with bodyguards and hanger-ons for every conceivable purpose. I would protect them from other, from, from other immortals as best I could. And if the immortals were anything like they used to be in the old days, they'd never risk a fuggle struggle with a human force like that. As I walked up to the busy avenue, I covered my eyes with mirrored sunglasses. I rode the rickety old St. Charles streetcar downtown, and through the early morning crowd, early evening crowd, I wandered into the elegant double-decker bookstore called DeVille Books, and there stared at the small paperback of an interview with the vampire on the shelf. I wondered how many of our kind had noticed the book, never mind for the moment that mort the mortals who thought it was fiction. What about other vampires? Because if there is one law that all vampires hold sacred, it is that you do not tell mortals about us. You never pass on our secrets to humans unless you mean to bequeath dark gift for powers to them. You never name other mortals. You never tell where their lairs might be. My beloved Louis, the narrator of Interview with the Vampire, had done all of this. He had gone far beyond my secret little disclosure to my, to my rock singers. He had told hundreds of thousands of readers. He had all but drawn them a map and placed an X in the very spot in New Orleans where I slumbered. Though what he really knew about that and what his intentions were was not clear. Regardless for what he'd done, others would surely hunt him down. And there are very simple ways to destroy vampires, especially now. If he was still in existence, he was an outcast and lived in, dan in a danger from our kind that no mortal could ever pose. All the more reason for me to bring the book and the band called the Vampire Lestat to fame as quickly as possible. I had to find Louis. I had to talk to him. In fact, after reading his account of things, I ached for him. Ached for his romantic illusions and even his dishonesty. I ached even for his gentlemanly malice and his physical presence. 
the deceptively soft sound of his voice. Of course, I hated him for the lies he had told about me, but the love was far greater than the hate. He had shared the dark and romantic years of the 19th century with me. He was my companion as no other mortal had ever been, and I ached to write my story for him, none answered to his malice in interview with the vampire, but the tale of all the things I had seen and learned before I came to him, the story I could not tell him before. All rules didn't matter to me now, either. I wanted to break every one of them and I wanted my band and my book to draw out not only Louis, but all the other demons that I'd ever known and loved. I wanted to find my lost ones, awaken those who slept as I had slept. Fledgling and ancient ones, beautiful and evil and mad and heartless, they'd all come after me when they, when they saw those video clips and heard those records, when they saw the book in the windows of the bookstores, and they'd know exactly where to find me. I'd be the stat, the rock star, superstar. Just come to San Francisco for my first live performance. I'll be there. But there was another reason for this whole adventure. A reason, even, even more dangerous, delicious, and mad. And I knew Louis would understand. It must have been behind his interview, his confessions. I wanted mortals to know about us. I wanted to proclaim it to the world the way I told it to Alex and Larry and Tough Cookie and my sweet lawyer, Christine. And it didn't matter that they didn't believe it. It didn't matter that they thought it was art. The fact was that, after two centuries of concealment, I was visible to mortals. I spoke my name aloud. I told my nature. I was there. But again, I was going farther than Louis. His story, for all its peculiarities, and passed for fiction. In the mortal world, it was as safe as the tableau of the old theater of the vampires in the Paris. In the Paris, where the fiends had pretended to be actors pretending to be fiends in a remote and gaslighted stage. I'd step into the solar lights before the cameras. I'd reach out and touch with my icy fingers a thousand, a thousand warm and grasping hands. I'd scare the hell out of them if it was possible, and Sean would lead them on, lead them on to the truth of, of it if I could. And suppose, just suppose that when the corpses began to turn up in even greater numbers, that even though, and that when those closest to me began to hearken to their inevitable suspicions, just suppose that the art ceased to be art and became real. I mean, what if they really believed it, really understood what this world still harbored? Still harbored the old world demon thing, the vampire. Oh, what a glorious and great war we might have then. We would be known, and we would be hunted, and we would be fought in this glittering urban wilderness as no mythic monster has ever been fought by man before. How could I not love it, the mere idea of it? How could it not be worth the greatest danger, the greatest and most ghastly defeat? Even at the moment of destruction, I would be alive as I had never been. With the other war... But to tell the truth, I didn't think it would ever come to that. I mean, mortals believing in us. Mortals would ne have never made me afraid. 
It was the other war that was going to happen. The one in which you'd all come together, or they would all come to fight me. That was the real reason for the vampire and the stat. That was the kind of game I was playing. But the other lovely possibility of a real revelation and disaster, well, that added a hell of a lot of spice. Out of the gloomy waste of Canal Street, I went back up the stairs to my rooms in the old-fashioned French Quarter Hotel. Quiet as it was and suited to me, with the view carré spread out beneath its windows, the narrow little streets of, of Spanish townhouses I'd known for so long. On the giant television set, I played the cassette of the beautiful Wiscotti film, Death and Venus. An actor said at one point that evil was a necessity. It was food for genius. I don't believe that, but I wish it were true. Then I could be just the stat, the monster, couldn't I? And I was always so good at being a monster. Oh, well. I put a fresh disk into the portable computer word processor, and I started to write the story of my life. That's all for tonight, folks. I really hope you enjoyed it, and right now it is 10.04 p.m. here, and I'm going to stop reading for now. I really hope you enjoyed my narration of the vampire of the vampire Lestat. I will come back soon, perhaps in a week, to record the next part of that book. Until then, this is Callier, signing out.